At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. From WAB in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Our national parks are a marvel, and we have Teddy Roosevelt to thank. He established over 230 million acres of public lands during his presidency, including national parks, monuments, and wildlife refuges. On the importance of conservation, in 1908, Roosevelt wrote, we have become great because of the lavish use of our resources, but the time has come to inquire seriously what will happen when Our forests are gone when the coal, the iron, the oil, and the gas are exhausted, when the soils have still further impoverished and washed into the streams, polluting the rivers, denuding the fields, and obstructing navigation. Dayton Duncan wrote and produced the Ken Burns documentary series, The National Parks, America's Best Idea. I spoke with Duncan about chronicling the legacy of Roosevelt and other conservationists in the form of protected lands. Our conversation began with how they chose America's Best Idea to be part of the series title. Well, we took that title, we borrowed it from Wallace Stegner, the great writer who said it was the best idea we ever had. It sort of informed the whole series, I think. It's not a nature film per se, though there's a lot of nature in it. It's not a travel show per se, although we take you to a lot of places and it's not sort of the best lodges in the national parks or, you know, a travel piece, although we do travel a lot. But the premise of it is that this is a uniquely American idea that the greatest, most majestic, and I would say some, in some cases, sacred parts of our landscape are not there for the exclusive use of royalty or the rich or the well-connected, which in all of history 
those places had been set aside just for those people, that in the United States, this idea is in essence the application of the Declaration of Independence on the landscape, that these very special places are there for everyone and for all time. And that, at the time that that happened, that was a radical notion, just, just as radical as we say in the film, as the Declaration of Independence itself was, you know, a couple hundred years earlier. This was a, a radical notion that was born, I think, you know, not only because our continent had so many wonderful, majestic places, but also because it was here that that idea of equality and freedom uh, had its expression in 1776. Now, in addition to writing several acclaimed books and documentaries, you've collaborated with Ken Burns on several documentary series that are the most watched, perhaps the most appreciated programs in the history of public television. What made you suggest the national parks as a topic for Ken Burns? <laughs> well, I'm um, a great park lover and would hope that I could also be now described as a park champion. I believe in the idea of national parks, both for the soul and for the spirit, and just for the chance for families or people to connect not only to something larger than themselves, those transcendent moments that you can find in a national park, but also connect to one another. It was in, I think, 1998 that I came up with the notion that maybe we should try to do a series on um, the history of the national parks. And, you know, I bring ideas to Ken at different times. He and I did a film called Horatio's Drive about the first uh, automobile trip across the United States. I was really passionate about this story. Very few people knew about it. In 1903, Horatio Nelson Jackson on a $50 bet became the first person to cross the continent in an automobile, this newfangled machine. And I kept telling Ken that we ought to do it. And he'd sort of put me off and yeah, okay, yeah, maybe we'll think about it. It took me about 10 years to uh, finally persuade him to do that film. With National Parks, I sat him down. I said, I've got an idea for a series. It starts with a president named Lincoln, which I knew would catch his attention, doing something that is, in essence, putting the Declaration of Independence on the landscape. He'd done a film about Thomas Jefferson, so I knew I had his attention. I said, it's, it's about the National Parks. It took me about 45 seconds to convince him of that one. So my average between those two was about five years of persuasion. It was just something that was deeply embedded in my heart and my passion that I really thought could be made into an interesting stories that approach the parks in a different way than they had been in the past. And I had at that time, I, I had no idea about all of the range of fascinating characters who are the people that represent really what the story of the parks is. We, we tend to think that the parks have always been there. They haven't. We tend to think that it's sort of a top-down thing that the federal government, you know, declares a place a national park, which is what legally has to happen. 
But the real story of almost every national park, if you turn over that rock to say, how did this place become a national park? What you find is the opposite. You find individuals or small groups of people who fell in love with a place so passionately that they then dedicated themselves, sometimes for decades, to try to get the government to preserve it as a national park so that other people that they would never meet in generations they would never know would have the same opportunity to see that place and experience it the way that they had. And I, I find that just an incredibly renewable, inspiring story. Every, you know, every story that we told introduces you to new characters, some of them famous and powerful, John Muir, Teddy Roosevelt, but many of them unknown and from all walks of life, men and women, black and white. They were just great, inspiring stories set against, you know, the backdrop of the Grand Canyon or Yosemite National Park or the, you know, the wonderland that is Yellowstone. So it had a lot of different things going for it, but the beating heart of the series is about to bring to light the stories of how these places, the fights often that were required to preserve a place like the Grand Canyon from being despoiled. Well, it may have only taken 45 seconds to convince Ken Burns to adopt your idea for this series, but it was about 10 years in the making, I read. Is that correct? Yeah, I'm the luckiest person in, on earth, I think, in terms of what it is that I do in making films with Ken and writing books. And so my, quote, job as both the writer and the lead producer for this, once we decide we're going to do it, was to start the research and the scouting for it. So my, quote, job required me to go to all the national parks and meet the people there, talk to them about the stories behind the parks, to scout the locations that we would want to go shoot, read every book I could find about those parks, then come back to the parks with a film crew. That was my, quote, job as well. Interview the people that know the most about it, then work on a script, you know, here in my attic office in Walpole, New Hampshire, and then um, bring the script to Ken and our very talented team of producers and editors and start making a film out of it. So that, you know, all, all that takes time. We're, we're very slow at what we do. We like to think, hope that that extra time that we devote in those, what Ken would call the hunting gathering process, and then in the editing process itself for a film like the National Parks, that was two and a half years of editing. We put it together, we take it apart, put it together, take it apart, try to improve it with each of those iterations. So we take more time, but that's what we love. We love doing that. We love the sense of discovery that we always find in whatever topic it is that we're undertaking that's what gets us up in the morning. And it gets when you're shooting in a national park, the a kind of landscape cinematography that we do, we shoot, you know, starting about half an hour, 45 minutes before dawn 
the dawn hours, that early morning light, then the light before and during sunset are the two most dramatic times to be shooting outdoors. The lights, you know, more angular and shadows define things better. We would have to get up real early if you're up in uh, Glacier National Park in northern Montana and it's the middle of summer, you know, dawn comes real early and sunset comes real late. Uh, so they're long days, or if you're shooting in in Yellowstone in the middle of the winter to get the wonderful footage that we got of that place in the most magical time, I think, for Yellowstone, which is in the wintertime, it's cold. It's a short day, thankfully, but it's darn cold. And so, you know, they're either long or arduous days, and sometimes you get great stuff and sometimes you get skunked. But I'd have to remind myself and the crew and Ken sometimes, this is our job. Even if we didn't get any shooting done, we've stood here looking at the Grand Canyon. The light wasn't turned out not to be great, but would you rather be someplace else than just standing here waiting to see if the light will do its magic at uh, daybreak at the greatest canyon on earth? You know, it's not a bad, not a bad gig. Not at all. The episodes are effective as self-contained films and together comprise such a beautiful series. It seems so well-organized and orderly, Dayton, but with years of research and filming, and you mentioned two and a half years of editing alone, it's hard to imagine where you begin as a writer and producer. I wondered if the images come first or the narrative. Would you talk about the creative process for this series? Sure. While we're doing the research and reaching out to people, we do interviews before, you know, we do the bulk of our interviews before I start to write a script because we don't want the interviews to be a thing where you're just sort of trying to fill a hole in the script. That doesn't leave you the chance for the discovery of somebody to say something that you weren't expecting. We're doing those things at the same time I'm reading books and making notes and, you know, accumulating as much information as I can on paper and in my head. Uh, at a certain point, however, I've got to finally say, we can't make a film now until... I write a script. And so then my job, my challenge, but the challenge that I love is to try to make narrative sense out of all this. And, and the hardest thing really is all the things that you just decide you can't fit in. We can't tell every story. We don't cover the story of every national park. We have to pick those stories that fit into a tapestry that both moves you along narratively and chronologically. And also, as you said, each episode has to be able to sort of stand on its own narratively and dramatically. You know, it needs to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And you got to introduce characters and sometimes you can go move back in time. All of that, it's, you know, it's a bit of a jigsaw puzzle, except that you don't know what, you know, you don't know what it is that you're, you know, constructing until you start doing it. So anyway, I, I get a script done. My wife, a former reporter, is always my first editor. 
Now my son, who's working with me on a couple of films with Ken, would read it and give me their comments. I'd give it to Ken, get his comments. We always have a panel of expert advisors to our films. We share early script with them, get their comments, say, oh, you're totally off base here, or you're forgetting this, or this is really good and very important. Don't lose that. That results in a, a new draft of a script. When we're at about the third draft or fourth, then we'll start finally saying, okay, we've now compiled all this footage. We've collected all these photographs or great pieces of, of paintings and things like that. We've collected music that we think might work. Here's the script. Now let's make a film out of it. And once that happens, then it's still the same challenge. You know, the first draft of a script is probably up to and sometimes more than twice as long as the final uh, script. And I do that deliberately because the writing is not a collaborative process, but filmmaking is. And I want the team, Ken and the others, for whom they haven't been doing all the research that I have and, you know, don't know if it's not in that script, they're probably unaware of it. And I want the hard decisions that have to be made about what to take out, what to highlight, what to pare down a little bit. Those decisions are better made collaboratively if everybody's got this larger base of, of knowledge. So that's another thing that why our editing takes longer because we're paring things down, throwing things out, rearranging stories. Sometimes then decide, oh, the next time we look at it, say, oh, we made a mistake there, didn't we? We shouldn't have taken that sentence out or we shouldn't have taken that little story out. So we're always trying to improve and improve as we winnow it and winnow it and try to get it down. Always with in mind, what is the essence of this story? What is the essence of this larger American story that we're trying to tell. And we try to keep all those things in balance and try to try to forestall for as long as we can having to make final decisions because we're always open to suggestions. But we finally come up with a, at the end of the project with something that we're always very proud of. Filmmaker Dayton Duncan on the Ken Burns series, The National Park. America's Best Idea. We'll hear more of our conversation after a short break. This is WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Support for WABE comes from Capital Good Fund, introducing Georgia Bright Solar Lease Program, a new rooftop solar initiative designed to create pathways to equitable and inclusive solar, sustainability, and monthly savings for Georgians. Learn more at georgiabright.org. You're listening to City Lights on WABE, where ATL meets NPR. I'm Lois Reitzes. Let's return to my conversation with the filmmaker Dayton Duncan. 
he wrote and produced Ken Burns' documentary series, The National Parks, America's Best Idea. Here, Duncan talks about the important role played by John Muir in the creation of America's national parks. You come across in the films we do, you come across people that you can't really explain. You can only describe and stand back and be in awe of John Muir, who was an immigrant, I should point out, from Scotland. He could have been you know, a wealthy titan of industry. He was so good at inventions and things. But he also fell in love with the natural world. And by happenstance, he walked from Indiana to Florida, okay, and uh, took notes of the flora and the fauna along the way. He had hoped to go to South America, but he got malaria and ended up getting on a boat and going to California. And he'd heard about this place called Yosemite. And he walked from San Francisco. Well, he took a ferry across the bay, but walked from there into the high Sierra and became transformed by his experience in the mountains and in that exquisite valley. Besides being a great inventor, besides being, you know, skilled in botany and flora, he turned out to have, be one of the great writers in American history, I believe. So he started writing about this stuff and became sort of the voice in the wilderness, if you will. And what a voice he had talking about his experiences and seeing nature just as something that should be put to use, that it had certain places in nature had a different purpose. And that was simply to connect you to something larger than yourself. So when we try to pick out anything by itself, we find it's connected to everything else in the universe. And so he became this great champion of saving a number of places, expanding the size of Yosemite, making Yosemite a national park versus just under state control as it originally was. Mount Rainier became a national park with his efforts. He set in motion a century of conservation thinking in the United States, this, this immigrant to our country who pointed out to us what we should have known ourselves. And this series brings out the fascinating contradictions of Theodore Roosevelt. He came from an elite family yet as a politician. His public service demonstrated belief in a much larger segment of the people. He loved to hunt. And in fact, when he learned that buffalo were endangered and might become extinct, he made a trip to the West so he could shoot one and mount its head on the wall. How did a man who loved to kill animals and stuff them become a legendary conservationist who championed our national parks? His time in the West transformed his life, as he described. He went out to also to get into the cattle business. There was a big cattle boom going on in the Dakotas and Montana Territory at the time. And he was an avid, avid hunter. There were a number of avid hunters in the late 19th century 
he was, you know, in uh, an elite part of that group. They believed in sportsman hunting, but they were dismayed and appalled at the just general slaughter of wildlife that was going on for commercial reasons. So there's a contradiction there, but not not as big a one, I think, as we would like to think. It was his love of hunting that took him, you know, out into the wilderness and out into nature and helped him fall in love with it. Whereas Muir would talk about the spiritual aspects of being in nature. For Roosevelt, partly because he was a politician, he saw the democracy of the national parks. He called it the essential democracy of national parks. And he also was a vigorous president, used his bully pulpit, not to bully people, but to point people to things that they might not otherwise have done. And among those things was preserving and saving national forests, national parks. He signed what's called the Antiquities Act in 1906 that gives a president the sole authority to set aside federal lands as a national monument without needing Congress. And that's been an essential tool, starting with him, to save places when Congress is either slow to act or refuses to act. The Grand Canyon, the most, I would say, probably the most self-evident place to be a national park in our country, the fight to preserve it took decades. Roosevelt saved it using the Antiquities Act by making it a national monument. After that was 10 more years before it finally, Congress could agree to make it a national park. Stephen Mather was the same way. Fabulously rich guy, successful businessman. He suffered from depressions, I think may have been manic depressive. He was inspired by reading John Muir and one time meeting him and found in national parks and in nature, a rest for his mind and his spirit. And then brought his business savvy, his boundless energy to create a national park service. First of all, there wasn't one. The army and other agencies of government were in charge of the parks and they weren't being taken care of very well. And that got him ticked off. And so he wrote an angry letter to the Secretary of the Interior, which he could do because he knew the guy, saying how bad the job they were doing. He said, well, if you think you can do a better job, why don't you come to Washington and try? So he did. And he led this great campaign to create, in 1916, a National Park Service, and also further democratized the parks and there's always double-edged swords in this with the automobile taking off of trying to you know, refocus the parks to be more accessible by cars. John Muir wasn't so sure about that, but on the other hand, had to admit that with the advent of cars coming into parks, a different, more average Americans could now, parks originally were pretty much the preserve of people wealthy enough to travel by train and take two weeks away from work or a month away from work. Mather wanted more parks. He wanted more people to be able to come and experience it. And that was what he set out to do and, and establish the park service that I am uh, very proud to say both Ken and I are were named honorary park rangers, and I've got the hat to prove it. How special is that? 
For the visual beauty and breadth of this series, one has to watch every episode. One outstanding feature of the narrative is inclusiveness. National Park Ranger Shelton Johnson is African-American. We meet him early in the series. His commentary is memorable, if not poetic. His description of seeing bison on an early morning frozen park landscape and feeling he was thrust back to the Ice Age is unforgettable. And, and we learn about Captain Charles Young and the Buffalo Soldiers in this series. You also introduce us to an American Indian park ranger who explains that John Muir would have made a great medicine man. <laughs> Please talk about your effort to include people in this series whose stories are not well known. We didn't set out to say we, we, we need to find an African-American or we, we must have a Native American voice or something like that. As we delved into the history of the parks, those things, you know, shouted out to us. These are stories. There's important stories here. And it is so much broader, ethnically, racially, by gender, than most people realize. And so those stories and those people are there because a telling of the history of the national parks that didn't tell those stories would be documentary malfeasance, in my view, and in Ken's. Shelton I met him doing early scouting in Yosemite. I went to a program they did about the Buffalo Soldiers. I, he and I exchanged cards. I told him, I really want to tell the story of the Buffalo Soldiers. And Charles Young, who essentially was the first superintendent of the National Park, and the Buffalo Soldiers were its first protectors. They were African-American soldiers called Buffalo Soldiers. They were part of the army out on the, the plains in the late 1860s, early 1870s, and the Indians referred to them as buffalo soldiers because their dark hair was curly like a buffalo's. And the soldiers took that, rightly so, as not disparaging, but a mark of honor. And so they liked to call themselves buffalo soldiers. There was no park service at the time, and somebody had to protect Yosemite from people herding their sheep into the high country and ruining it and enforce the regulations. As Shelton said, at those times in the 1890s, as an African-American, even if you've got a uniform on, coming up to somebody and saying, I'm going to have to expel you from this park, he said, that can be the start of a very interesting day. Besides wanting to ask him about Buffalo soldiers, you know, we had people, all the interviews we do, we'd have some open-ended questions, you know, the very first question we asked Shelton Johnson was, you know, is there one experience, if you had to close your eyes and, and just sort of say, I will never forget this moment in a national park, what would it be? And he, who studied poetry, by the way, in college, he uncorked this experience 
of seeing those bison on a cold winter day as he was driving the mail on a snowmobile from one part of the park to another and went into this rhapsody. And I swear, both of us thought that John Muir's spirit and soul had just inhabited this young black kid from the inner city of Detroit. One of the last jobs I had in Yellowstone was delivering the mail on snowmobile. There I was in the world's first national park. And I remember going down into Hayden Valley. There were bison crossing over the road, 2,000 pound mammals crossing over the road. And it was so cold, it was about 60 below zero. And the bison, as they breathe, their exhalation would seem to crystallize in the air around them. And there were these sheets, these ropey strands of crystals kind of flowing down from their breath. And uh, uh, I saw them, they just moved their heads and were looking at me. And I remember thinking that if I had not been on that machine, I would have thought I had been thrust fully back into the Pleistocene, back into the Ice Age. And I remember just stopping and turning it off because the only way you could hear is to turn that thing off. And I would turn it off and I would listen. And I felt like this was the first day. And this morning was the first time the sun had ever come up. And the shadows that are being cast right now is the first time those shadows have ever been cast on the earth. And I was all alone, but I felt I was in the presence of everything around me, and I was never alone. When he finished that, I was pretty sure that that was going to end up in the film. And it, uh, we use it to open our second episode. His own story, which we tell at the very, in the final episode, is an incredible story himself of growing up in the inner city of Detroit. The notion of national parks was alien to him, but he had a friend that had a job out at Yellowstone. And so he tells the story of getting off a bus, you know, took a bus out to Yellowstone to take a summer job out there and encountered a bison as he's getting off the bus. And then like John Muir, that experience just transformed his soul and his life. And then he got a job as a park ranger, was there in Yellowstone and then now out in Yosemite. One of the things that was great about his presence in our film, I think, is that he is dedicated to trying to make sure that not only are there parks and the park service more diverse, but that people who don't think that the parks are theirs can be persuaded that they belong to them too and that they ought to come. I went with uh, Shelton to his high school as we were promoting the film. I know enough about this stuff that we were gonna show some clips to some high school kids and then take questions, but I knew enough that I didn't need to say much of anything. I just let Shelton take over. And the greatest thing was, the very first question, the, this, this almost universally African-American audience of high school kids said, you know, lots of hands went up. And the first question was, how can I be a park ranger too? And that just warmed my heart and his. My friend Gerard Baker, I've known him for 40 years now. From, I met him when I was first doing, going along the Lewis and Clark Trail to write a book about it. And he and I became friends. He was at the lowest rung of the Park Service at that time. And I was 
about the lowest rung of a writer at that time. I didn't have much money, but I was pursuing a story and um, we met, became friends. And over time, he rose in the Park Service. He appeared in our film about Lewis and Clark. He became the first Native American superintendent of Mount Rushmore and invited the neighboring tribes to come and give talks and set up a teepee and talk about the larger issue there. He was also superintendent for a while at the Little Bighorn National Battlefield and invited the the tribes of the other, there are two American armies met there at the Little Bighorn. And he wanted to make sure that both sides felt that that battleground was, you know, belonged to, to both sides, both the army and the Sioux and Cheyenne and others. During a 2006 visit to the Grand Canyon with my husband, one of the most thrilling experiences was attending a lecture by a Hopi ranger. And this was my introduction to the Hopi people. And it has been a fascination of mine ever since. But your inclusion of these stories in the series is reaching countless viewers whose lives it could change. And, and I, I think that's so admirable. Thank you. If you are just joining us, I'm Lois Reitzes, and this is City Lights. I'm talking with filmmaker Dayton Duncan, who wrote and produced the Ken Burns documentary series, The National Parks, America's Best Idea. Here, I asked Duncan about some of the expressions used in the series to describe America's national parks. There are so many ideal descriptions. I couldn't write them down quickly enough. But a few outstanding quotes here. Empire of grandeur, a treasure house of nature's superlatives, geographies of memories and hope, a great breathing place for the national lungs, and perhaps my favorite, Earth's Maternity Ward. (laughs) Would you touch upon the beautiful language used throughout the series? Well, in in honesty, a number of those phrases that you use are are taken from a quote from somebody that's that appears in the film. Some of them, the Treasure House of Nature Superlatives. That's that that's my writing. And Earth's Maternity Ward is a phrase I used. Ken decided on some films that he and I do. He will come to me at a certain point and he'll say, "I want to interview you on this." The Earth's Maternity Ward just came to me in the midst of his interview with me. I didn't had had never written it down. I was talking about as a kid from Iowa going to Hawaii Volcanoes National Park where a lava flow was underway. And we went out in the darkness with a ranger to where it was, the lava was reaching the ocean. And it was just, uh, you know, it it was just an unbelievable pre-dawn 
hike across the lava field that was already solid enough that you know and not so hot that we could get to this place and then to be there as the dawn came up and film and just spend several hours just watching that stuff pour into the ocean and realize that without congressional action whatsoever that national park was being enlarged because when that lava reaches the ocean it cools and eventually you know becomes land and so i was just mesmerized by that and i was just struggling to try to explain the euphoria that i felt and the only thing i could think of was that i said it's you know it's like going into the the adrenaline or in the soulful rush that you get if you go into a maternity ward and see those little babies and particularly if one of them is yours that just exaltation that you get from it and i was experiencing that in terms of new land and so it was it was earth's maternity ward empire of grandeur and a number of those other things are as we're making a film we'll use quotes from from historical figures and have a great actors read those quotes empire of grandeur i think was from something that either stephen mather wrote or robert sterling yard who was his publicist wrote about that what we have here in these national parks and we're not really promoting them and protecting them correctly is an empire of grandeur and so that seemed like a good title for an episode Definitely unforgettable. You mentioned the voices, many recognizable, including Tom Hanks, Adam Arkin, Derek Jacoby, John Lithgow. Did you have stars just lining up to <laughs> participate? How do, how do you get these people on board? You know, this all begins with when Ken was making his first film as an unknown filmmaker, entirely unknown, on the history of the Brooklyn Bridge. And the grandson of Roebling, who was the designer of the Brooklyn Bridge, was himself an actor. And so Ken got to know him and asked him to be the voice of his grandfather, which he, which he was happy to do and honored to do. But he introduced Ken to Julie Harris, who became a great actress, who became a voice in that. And she introduced him to some other people. By the time he got to be doing the Civil War, he had established contacts with lots of, of good actors who really enjoy that work. We also have voices that are some neighbors here in New Hampshire who read for us. Generally, just to fill in until we get the, you know, until we know what the film finally is, and then we record. But some of them are so good that we use them in the final film. Tom Hanks saw Ken at some place and said, Ken, I, you know, met him for the first time, like how much I love your films. And, and I, that was when we were making our film on Horatio's Drive. And I told him, you know who the perfect voice for, for Horatio Nelson Jackson would be is Tom Hanks. And so he had that in the back of his mind. He goes, Tom, I'm glad you like it. Would you like to be a voice for us? And he said, I would love to. And so we asked him to be Horatio Nelson Jackson. And from then, he's been in almost all of Ken's films. But that first time, we spent a half a day with him out in a recording studio 
in Los Angeles recording those voices, we pay the SAG minimum for someone to, to read our voice, which is not a lot of money. It's about, I think at that time, it was a couple hundred bucks or something like $250. So I had the great honor after he had finished reading to present him with a check for about $256. And I just said, so I, I just want to give you this with, with a little bit of advice, diversify. Don't, <laughs> don't, don't put all this in just one basket. But I think that they appreciate the care that we take. They appreciate the final film and the quality that they believe it has. And they're happy to do it. Finally. Why are the national parks a symbol of democracy at its best? If you believe in the promise, still unfulfilled, of the Declaration of Independence, that there are certain self-evident truths, that among those are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, but if you also believe that all people are created equal, that they're endowed by their creative with certain inalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. If you believe in that, which is what our nation was founded on, and a journey that has is still struggling to fulfill those words. We've made progress in many places, but we're still far short in others. But if you believe in that, then you can also believe that we are blessed that this nation is blessed with a landscape that is full of a treasure house of superlatives that can connect you to nature they can connect you to yourself they can connect you to other people they can restore your spirit they can make you healthier they can make you better and that those things need to belong to everybody, and they do. And what needs to be done is to encourage people to understand that, on the one hand, this is your property. Go out and inspect your property and make sure it's being taken well care of. But the other thing you've got to be doing to make sure of is that you make sure that you put it in your will for your kids, that it's protected for them and for their children and their children's children. These are shared treasures and they need to be protected, but they need to be seen and experienced and they need to be there when we're, those of us listening to this voice are long gone. They, they need to be able to stand on the rim of the Grand Canyon as you did and have somebody explain it, whether it's a Hopi park ranger or an African-American park ranger and hear the story of that, but also just that sheer awesome moment, whether you're with a large crowd or just by yourself or holding the hand of somebody you love and just sit there or stand there in silence and let the whole transcendent wonder of it surround you. That's what it's about. Dayton Duncan, writer and producer of the Ken Burns documentary series, The National Parks, America's Best Idea. The series is available now for streaming with PBS Passport. 
It will also be broadcast on ATL-PBA starting July 7th. This is City Lights on WABE Atlanta. Author Mark Warren's book, Secrets of the Forest, The Magic and Mystery of Plants and the Lore of Survival, is a guide to identifying plants and their uses, along with some native history. Warren joined us in 2019 and began with what he learned from his time in the forest. First, I will say that the most fundamental study that a person can undertake to understand survival skills is to learn plants first. Because when you do that, you start learning about the geology because of where those certain plants prefer to grow. You learn about wildlife because you're going to learn which animals are eating those plants. You're going to see their tracks there. It's the foundation for everything that I teach. So with that said, in my teaching of plants with my students, I encourage them to look at plants as living beings, to not take them for granted, and to even approach them in a way like the Cherokees did. The place where I live now in the mountains of North Georgia was Cherokee land. So every plant that I see there, or virtually every plant, not including some of the invasives that have come in, those are plants that the Cherokees knew. Let me just mention to you how they approached a plant first. They had a ritual about it. They first went out empty-handed, without a harvesting tool, just to visit the plant. And when they found the proper one, they circled it a certain number of times. That number was one of their sacred numbers, number four. And then they would approach it from the south only. And then they would kneel down to the plant and touch it and speak to it. This sounds a little bit like pantheism or worshiping of plants, but it's basically like us saying grace before a meal. Why is it important to learn how to identify sassafras or to learn how to make a bark basket? Well, the identification process is an absolute must because you have to know the plant you're dealing with. You can't guess. A quick example, I remember back in the 70s, the leading mycologist in the nation ate the wrong mushroom and died. That speaks uh, a lot about the difficulty of studying mushrooms. But every year we hear about some child ingesting a poisonous plant and dying from it. And it's all because of not being familiar with plants, not knowing how to identify. Unfortunately, the world of nature has become more of a kind of a postcard backdrop for most people. And we're not as engaged with it on an intimate level. So the knowledge of plants is something that's being unfortunately lost. What have you observed in your teachings about how people change after a few hours or days in nature? That's a good question because uh, it's something that you don't see on a first visit. It takes several visits before a student might warm up to you enough to share that with you, what changed for them. And the answer to it is that the student steps from being a spectator of nature to being a participant. 
And what that breeds is an intimacy. For example, if a person in one of my classes prepares a food from a certain species of tree, from that day on, after having ingested part of that tree, that tree is literally, we can call it a friend of that person. It's an acquaintance at least. And every time that person encounters that tree in another place, that person sees a friend. There's a bond that's growing there. So you become more engaged in that complicated web of life that we call ecology by being one of the players instead of one of the observers. Hmm. You've talked about your students. We should mention your school is called Medicine Bow. What's the origin of the name? It may sound familiar to people uh, from Wyoming because there we have a town, Medicine Bow. That was the town that the Virginian, the novel, was uh, centered around. And there's a Medicine Bow River, a Medicine Bow Mountain Range, and the Medicine Bow National Forest. I took that name because it was an actual thing in Native American history. It was a literal bow that was made for ceremony only never used for killing. And so it symbolizes for me education, sending out arrows. I think of the students who leave Medicine Bow as arrows, and they take with them not only a new intimacy with the forest, but the knowledge that they too can teach somewhere else. And so it becomes an exponential kind of learning experience. Author and educator Mark Warren on his Secrets of the Forest, the magic and mystery of plants, and the lore of survival. You've been listening to City Lights, WABE's daily exploration of arts and culture. We'll be back tomorrow morning at 11 with Alan Zweibel, one of the original writers for Saturday Night Live. His new memoir, Laugh Lines, chronicles his life making funny people funnier. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden, with guest appearances from Stephen Key. Kevin Brinker is our engineer, and he produced the segment on our national parks. I'm Lois Reitzes. I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to W-A-B-E Atlanta. Sounds Like ATL is a music documentary series that takes an in-depth look at the artists amplifying Atlanta's famed music community. Built around a desire to highlight Atlanta's diverse and world-renowned music scene, each episode features unforgettable, intimate musical performances by fresh new musical guests, each with exclusive interviews about the stories behind their music. Listen at wabe.org or wherever you find your podcasts. 
Ever wondered where to find the best dumplings in town? Curious about Atlanta's obsession with lemon pepper? Join us on Savory Stories, a new podcast, as we uncover the untold tales behind Atlanta's culinary scene. From the roots of your favorite dishes to the creators that bring them to life, we're diving deep into the heart of the city's food culture. Listen to Savory Stories at wabe.org slash podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. W-A-B-E. 